Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today by Dimity McDowell. Hello, Dimity. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Oh, good. It's so funny. I always, uh, in the show notes, I write at the top, co-host and who it is. And I still do it when it's you. And it's like, yes, Sarah, <laughs> I think you might remember who you're talking to. But uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we've had a couple conversations over the years, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, and you offered some nice encouragement over the past two weeks for um, my younger daughter, Daphne, who was in lifeguard training because you have experience with kids in that field. Yes, I do. I have a very, I have, I have a veteran lifeguard on my staff. Yes, yes. <laughs> so yeah, so she was nervous about passing the test, I felt like. And I was like, oh, you're totally going to pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, I guess the way you knew that, um, not just from me reporting it, but uh, you called while I was in the car with Daphne. And, and when uh, when I get a business call, I always tell the person like, oh, I'm in the car with, you know, Phoebe or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, you mind your mouth. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So anyway, yeah. So that's when Daphne expressed some uh, trepidation about whether she'd pass or not but yeah she did she, she did. did and now yeah. she's gainfully employed as a lifeguard which is a great thing uh, exactly yeah so and she got assignment at the pool that is outside her high school like her high school is in this park setting and um so she, that's yeah, it's walking distance and so she was uh, pleased to get that assignment and she starts on monday and uh because the minimum wage here in portland is 15 dollars an hour yeah. Um, uh, she's getting fifteen seventy five. Yeah, yeah, that's what uh, I think. It's around that here in Denver too now. Uh -huh. um, it's fifteen to sixteen dollars. I mean, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't suck. I mean, you, you might have to save a life, but most of the time you're just sitting in a chair being attentive. You know, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. which I think it can be harder than it seems. You know, I was talking to one of our lifeguards up at a local pool the other night when there was like no one there. She's like, it is so hard when it's slow. Like when it's uh -huh. it's like working retail. Like when it's busy, you're like, sweet, I love this. You know, uh -huh. um, but when there's not a lot going on, it's hard to kind of keep your focus I think exactly there's only so many times you can bite the inside of your mouth to stay awake you know exactly exactly <laughs> or you know dance and you know do a little dance with your feet or whatever yeah 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 so she's uh looking forward to that and she's very attentive in real like she notices things she's a noticer yeah um, yeah so I think she's well suited for the job and she takes things very seriously so perfect she'll be yeah. a great great lifeguard can you go swim laps there um, you know, they, they have limited, so they have, it's, um, the pools, not the swankiest pool I've ever been to, but it's, um, has a divider, like an actual, um, concrete divider or stucco or something. And so one side is for lap swimming. They don't always have lap times. And I gotta say, it is like, you're taking your life in your own hands because, um, like at lunchtime, I've, I, a bunch of years ago, I swam there and it was the most serious triathletes and they would run you down as quick as they'd <laughs> look at you. And wow. it was, it's just, it just, it wasn't pleasant. And you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm a decent swimmer. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not you, I'm not coach Jen, you know, or something like that, but I'm a decent enough swimmer. And I just, it, it felt very it's belittling. Yeah. 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 It's not fun when you are, when you feel like you're, I mean, the best best situation for a situation like when you're swimming with somebody who is much faster or much slower than you is you split a lane, right? Oh, and yeah. Everyone yeah. can do your mm -hmm. thing. But if they run you down, that's not fun. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it always ends up circle swimming and it's an older pool. So the lanes are kind of narrow. And... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like being a twin bed, you know, trying to share a twin bed. You're like, you know what? That's, it's also like the lanes on the um, like one and six if it's a six lane pool. Yeah. You know, like there's a ladder and you're like, mm, I don't really like sharing this lane. Like this is a one, a one person lane. <laughs> Oh, 
Oh my goodness. And uh, so you are headed out of town for, I wouldn't call it a vacation exactly. Yeah, no, it's just a little summer, you know, jaunt up to the mountains as one does in Colorado when it's 100 degrees right now. I was just telling Sarah earlier, she was like, um, I hear some ambient noise. And I'm like, yeah, that's my fan because it is effing so hot in here. I was going to say cold. It is so hot in Colorado right now, which I know it's hot all over the country. I watch my national news. But um, anyway, yeah. So um, we, my mom, who lives in Arizona, which is much warmer, and, uh, you know, hat tip to anybody who is south of the Mason-Dixon line, because I know you guys are sweltering, um, <laughs> rented a place in Steamboat uh, Springs, which is about three hours from here. So um, I'm going to come and go a little bit. It's a great chance to get to see her um, with the kids, without the kids, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and be in a different spot. So I'm excited to Mm-hmm. I've spent a little time up there. Like, I feel like I did a, I've done a bike ride or something up there, I skied a couple of times, but I haven't spent a ton of time. Oh. So, yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. Because it's your dream one day to uh, retire to a, a mountain town, right? Um. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Grant and I were definitely talking last night. Like, so we'll be up there for a week with our, um, with Ben. Amelia will be already at school. Um, and we haven't told Ben that he's staying up there for a week yet with just us and his <laughs> grandparents. So I'm not sure if he's going to be down with that or not. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, we were talking about, yeah, scoping it out. I mean, I would like to live, my, my thing is that I want to live somewhere closer where nature is available. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. suburban Denver is, sounds kind of rustic. Well, maybe it doesn't suburban Denver. <laughs> it doesn't sound super rustic, but to get to the trails, I mean, I've talked about this, I think before, it's like a good, you know, 30, 30, 40 minute drive. And it's just like, I just want to live somewhere smaller. And the traffic, I mean, gosh, mm-hmm. I sound like just a, just a old bitty right now. Like it's hot. There's too much traffic. All these people. But I would just like to live somewhere where my pace of life is a little bit more, um, Relaxed. Relaxed, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, I, I hope that you, that one day can be become a reality for yeah, you. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, you know, it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And, you know, the biggest thing that we were talking about with Grant last night is, yes, I would love to move to a smaller town and, you know, be near great trails and stuff. But I want to make sure that we also uh, take community into the equation, right? Um, mm-hmm. And make sure that there are people either there with, that we know already or p- ways to get to know people because, you know, from two work from home people, like I've definitely, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I can't, uh, it's a concern. I'll just say mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe it can become like a birder or, you know, something. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Volunteer at the Rose Garden or something. Yes, or pickleball. Pickleball. That's the best way to meet people, right? (laughs) Exactly. It sure is. It sure is. So, well, uh, this is the second, this episode's the second in a two-part series that kicked off Dimity, as you well know, on Tuesday's episode of AMR Trains. And uh, so each episode features one of the two authors of a hot new book uh, called Next Level, Your Guide to Kicking Ass, Feeling Great, and Crushing Goals Through Menopause and Beyond, otherwise known as the world's longest subtitle. Um, And uh, Celine Yeager was the AMR Trains guest, and today we continue the conversation with Stacey Sims, PhD. And Stacey is a repeat guest in one of our most popular episodes ever, way back in January 2017. Dr. Sims talked about topics she covered in her first book, Roar. So um, we divvied up the topics between the two episodes. And today with Dr. Sims, we're covering nutrition, strength training, and sleep. While on Tuesday on trains, Dim, you and uh, your other co-host, Sarah, talked about body image, endurance, cardiovascular fitness, and mobility. So stay tuned with our conversation with Stacey Sims. 
Welcome back to the show, Stacey. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat again. Yeah, it's going to be a great episode. So we're going to start with a few of the uh, same questions we asked Celine on Tuesday. So the first one is, what spurred you guys to write Next Level? Oh, so after Roar came out, because we had that one chapter on menopause, um, we got so many questions from active women about, well, what about us? We need more. Mm -hmm. And then uh, just looking at the fastest rising population in competitive, you know, age group sport is this 40-year-old plus set. And I fall in there now too, right? So it's like, okay, we're getting all these questions. I had been in the Women's Health Initiative working public health and human performance. So it kind of just rolled off me. Like, I'm like, I know exactly what we need to do. I don't understand why people aren't doing this. And then Celine's like, yeah, well, I don't know if I can write this book yet until she started experiencing things. And she's like, okay, now I see what you're talking about, Stace. Let's do this. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Nice. So it was it was really out of demand for information. Nice, nice. So in the intro to Next Level, you and Celine mentioned that doctors still barely talk about menopause or perimenopause. But as you alluded to, that it's you know just more and more women are entering it because um, nearly 40% of a woman's life is hopefully extends after menopause. And um, there's the stat that in three short years, by 2025, more than 1 billion women worldwide will be experiencing menopause. So that's a lot of chicks. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> um, so yeah. why, why do you say think there's still such a lack of research happening oh it's totally the stigma it's a socio-cultural aspect of menopause like mm. it's a definitive point in a woman's life where she's you know aging like men don't age like women they age in a linear fashion so you know in the late 60s they have a drop in testosterone they start experiencing some changes that are associated with aging but for women and menopause it's like this life-altering stage that no one wants to talk about mm -hmm. and when we're looking at the research itself um, there is research on menopause but it's all about the impact on the public health systems where we're looking at when you have the onset of menopause, all of a sudden there's increase in metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, bone mineral issues. So all the negative factors get the push in the research. Hmm. But when you're active and you're going through this and you're taking care of yourself and you don't impact the public health systems and your insurance company's like, hey, you're active, then there's a, that lack of research because mm -hmm. there isn't that demand from a monetary standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it's a, the mix of people don't want to talk about it because women aren't supposed to age, according to mass media and the images that are out there. And you're not an, an impact on insurance or public health system. So why are we going to do research? Yeah, it's like we, we need to get loud and in people's, <clears throat> face, in people's faces about this, you know? Yeah. So we're working on it, but yeah. yeah. Maybe we need to roar, Sarah. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and so before we get into the, into the questions, uh, Stacey, tell us a bit about your professional background as well as your athletic resume. Um, and please be sure to talk a little bit about your Women Are Not Small Men lectures as we want to sit in on one of those talks. Okay, so I guess my academic and sporting background kind of all merged together because mm -hmm. I started as well, I started as a poli sci French major and fell asleep in every poli sci class. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd been a, a runner through high school, and then I joined the crew team, and so I'd been an athlete, 
And when I got into ex-phys and started asking questions and there weren't answers, that kind of drove the academic side of things, like really trying to understand why these questions for women hadn't been answered and where was the research. And then at the same time, still maintaining um, a high level of, of racing. So I've gone through, you know, ultra running into Ironman, racing worlds at Ironman, into racing professionally on the road bike into racing high level Xterra and going to worlds. And then I had a, a kid and had a hard pregnancy and haven't really competed since. Um, but when we're looking across the board, it's the questions that I had or my teammates had or research that was coming out in the sports science world where it didn't quite make sense that drove me in the academic side of things. And along the way, a lot of my um, classes were about sex differences or training or the research was about women. And so disseminating that to wake a lot of people up, I'd be like, well, you know, women are not small men. And the undergrads would be like, what? And the guys would be like, what do you mean? And the girls would be like, yes. And then in conferences and stuff, waking people up especially like the male coaches going, you know, women are not small men and women have periods. We go through all these experiences. And if you can't say the word period, then you're really not capturing your performance potential for your female athletes. So it's, it's that, that catchphrase that people kind of sit up and go, wait, and then you can really start to explain what it is from sex differences at birth all the way through different hormone profiles and how it directly affects women's performance potential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so for all our listeners in their 20s and 30s who, who can say the word period and are having it and all that stuff, they, they maybe can't even kind of envision a day when they won't have it. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm eight or nine years past all, I had kind of early menopause. And so I can barely remember what it's like to bleed monthly. So, so give a brief overview to the folks who, who are still having their periods. What, what, you know, happens to your hormones as you come into perimenopause and menopause? Yeah, so when we're looking at our, our reproductive years before perimenopause, we have that normal cyclical 25 to 40 day cycle where day one of bleeding, estrogen and progesterone have dropped, and that's why you're bleeding. And then around ovulation, estrogen comes up. After estrogen or after ovulation, estrogen and progesterone come up, and then they drop and you have your, your next bleed phase. When we get into perimenopause, we have more and more anovulatory cycles. And if we don't ovulate, we don't produce progesterone. So we start having a misstep in the ratios of estrogen progesterone. Hmm. And you might still have your normal length of cycle, but the first indication is we start seeing changes in the bleed pattern. Hmm. So you might have, you go from normal five or six days of, of heavy to light bleeding to all of a sudden two days of heavy bleeding, nothing, another couple of days of heavy bleeding, and then some light bleeding. So it definitively changes. Mm -hmm. Some people have heavy bleeding, some people have light bleeding, and you really start to see that in the late perimenopause years. But the early perimenopause years, when you're having these changes of ratios of estrogen progesterone, you start seeing differences in body composition, you start seeing the fact that you're not really adapting to the training that you're doing. Mm. You might plateau. A lot of people attribute it to, you know, like the stress of your life in this, you know, 40, 40, mid forties, where you might be at the peak of your career. You have young kids or teenagers, older parents. So it's the lifestyle stress and people are like, Oh, it's just cause you're stressed. That's why you're having changes, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's because we're having more and more ovarian failure episodes of an 
uh, and ovulation and miss misstepanies ratios. And then they slowly start to completely peter out. And then you have one year of no bleeding. And then after that one year on the calendar, that marks menopause. After that, you're in postmenopause, a new biological state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, we're going to head into strength training. So I think you and Celine put a new acronym into the into the gym world, uh, LHS, <laughs> which stands for Lift Heavy Stuff. Um, the stuff is our PG rated substitute word, which I think our listeners can probably fill in the blank there. Yeah. Um, we endurance athletes like our high reps, um, which you don't really do when you LHS. So can you tell about why it's important to shift from say like, you know, sets of 20 to maybe sets of six to eight? Yeah. So, uh, I was laughing when, you know, I was at the endurance conference for training peaks and talking about long, slow distance. Everyone's like, LSD, LSD. I'm like, no, no, LHS. And like, oh. I was like, we have to lift heavy stuff. And the reason for that is when we enter this phase where our hormones are shifting and starting to plateau off, we have to look for an external stress that will create a signaling to the body to induce changes, how these hormones used to support us. So when we're talking about lifting heavy stuff, we're looking for a neuromuscular connection that will stimulate actin. So we have two proteins in the muscle that cause a contraction, actin and myosin filaments. Mm-hmm. And myosin is directly related to estrogen. So estrogen enhances the integrity of myosin and kind of helps keep it in check. So we know that we have a really good myosin filament. And actin is kind of the counterpart to it and works together, has a little bit of influence from estrogen. So when estrogen starts to die off or the estrogen receptors are not as sensitive, we lose some of the integrity of myosin. And if we look to lift heavy stuff, we are invoking a nerve to come down and try to like get as many muscle fibers to contract as possible to lift that load. And if we're doing that, then we are creating an environment that makes myosin's integrity stay, as well as creating a signal to induce more myosin and create muscle protein synthesis. Because the body's like, whoa, that's a really heavy load. And I need to keep that nerve to muscle connection and create and keep that muscle in order to overcome that. If we are looking from, you know, like the eight to 15 rep range, it's not the same thing. It's more of a metabolic stress, which creates breakdown of lean mass. So you're ripping the fiber. You're not really taking care of the um, signaling to keep that myosin, nor are you creating the signaling to build lean mass. So when we're switching and going lift heavy stuff, It's specifically to create an environment that invokes a stress that your body's like, oh gosh, I better listen to this stress and overcome it. And that's what estrogen used to do for us. We could do higher reps when we had estrogen because we'd still get hypertrophy, we get strength gains, but when we're losing it and have lost it, we have to use this other stress in order to keep building strength, to keep building signaling for power and to keep building that muscle protein synthesis signaling. Mm, that's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Wow. Wow. So, so for folks listening who are maybe doing body weight moves, um, how do they transition to, to lifting 
heavy and what kind of qualifies as heavy? I realize it probably varies from person to person, but um, you know, how do you make that shift? Yeah. So I would never tell someone to go into the gym today and try to deadlift a hundred kilos. Like Mm -hmm. if you don't have a history for it, what we want people to do is think about the phase in just the same as you're, you're returning from injury from running. It's not like you're going to be like, great, I feel better. I'm going to go for a 20 mile run. You always start with (laughs) the walk run as much as we want it. Right. But we phase in. So with lifting, it's the same thing. We want to phase in and look for proper form. So it could be hiring a personal trainer for a couple of sessions to really nail down form. Because as you start lifting heavy, it becomes really important that you are maintaining the right biomechanics and techniques so you don't get injured. Mm -hmm. Then you slowly increase the load with mechanics becoming better and better. So it might take four months or so before we actually start getting into the three by five, where we're saying three to five exercises, um, three to five lifts per exercise with three to five minutes recovery in between. So with heavy lifting, it's not cardiovascular. You're not going in there and going, I'm going to do 50 push-ups and I'm going to get through it in a circuit. It's okay. I'm going to do three to five really heavy bench presses. And then I'm going to rest for one to three minutes. So that neuromuscular aspect in the central nervous system completely recovers because it's not a metabolic stress. So, so I have to say my, um, when I've been uh, working with a trainer and lifting heavier weights, um, that that resting part is so, so difficult, like to just stand there. It feels like a waste of time. You're like, I feel like if there was a dishwasher somewhere nearby, I'd go empty it or something. Like, <laughs> I know. That's the hazard of being an endurance athlete. Like I'm the same, like coming from endurance. I'm like, what do you mean I have to sit here? And you go in the gym and you see all these people that are just sitting around like, what are you doing? I need that machine. Uh-huh. And you're like, ah, oh, I gotcha. You're resting because this, the central nervous system is it's such an important part of heavy lifting because it's such a strong neural stimulus. Mm. You have to make sure that you rest and recover. Because mm-hmm. again, we're not after a metabolic stress. And I think that's what so many endurance athletes think about when they think about lifting. They're like eight to 12 reps. My heart rate comes up. It's a, you know, I'm building muscle. It's a bit of a calorie burn. But in actuality, when you're doing heavy lifting, you might spend 20 or 30 minutes in the gym lifting heavy and half that time is resting. And you Mm -hmm. get out and you're like, oh, I feel tired, but I don't feel like I've really done too much. Like my Mm -hmm. muscles are tired, but from a cardiovascular standpoint, you're not taxed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Sarah. I was just going to say, it's a mind shift that has to happen. Absolutely. you know, that you have to say like, that's okay. That was the right workout I was supposed to do today, you know, and not go run three miles because you feel like that's the the cherry on top that you need. Right. And I mean, I struggle with it. I've been an endurance athlete since I was 13. And yesterday I was like, okay, it's hot. I'm a bit tired and I shouldn't try to go run. I need to do some lifting. And so Mm -hmm. I went into the local gym and that's what I did. And I was like, I don't really feel like I did anything. Did I do enough? And so it was that mindset, but I know that I did. I did a proper lifting episode and that's all I needed. Mm-hmm. And it is really, it's still, it's still a struggle, especially when you're coming from that endurance mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so talk a little bit about, you know, again, um, how many times a week in an ideal world, granted, I know that there's, you know, it's not ide- like people could be training for marathons still, or, you know, they could be coming back from an injury or whatever. But I mean, are we looking to lift heavy, like, once a week, three times a week, uh, more than that, less than that. And what, and what exercises are best suited for this? Cause I mean, we're not going to 
lift heavy stuff with like what like doing like shoulder raises or something like that right no 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 we want to look to support the sport that we're in so for so many women we're quad dominant just by the nature of our biomechanics so when we're looking at being a runner we need to do a lot of posterior chain so this is squats this is deadlifts this is single leg um, squats, Romanian deadlifts, everything that works, the glutes, the hamstrings, um, the calves, so all of the back muscles, um, because it helps with posture, it helps with balance, it helps uh, through the running, uh, like single leg step ups are really fantastic for running. Um, and so you're looking at minimum three times a week. If you're training for a marathon or something like that, then you can look at one to two times but you really ideally want to stick to that three times a week. Okay. And does this mean like, I mean, do we get out of doing stuff like clamshells and burpees and other stuff that like, you know, we've been told that is helpful? Yeah, because, well, clamshells you can use to warm up, right? So you want to activate your glutes. You can do that with like technique on the bar too. So you don't have to do them. But burpees, that's a metabolic stress. Like you don't have to do burpees if you're doing heavy lifting. Oh, right there. That's a, we need a quote. We need to tattoo that on our forehead, Sarah. Right? I'm yeah. never doing another burpee. Stacy no Sims said so. Yeah. But burpees fall into the plyometrics that you also have to do. So maybe you're not completely off the hook. Yeah, yeah. We did talk to Celine about jumping. And that was one thing that um, definitely took me by surprise, because I feel like we all feel like we're getting too fragile as we get older, you know, and I'm like, oh, I don't need to do squat jumps anymore. And I'm like, oh, in fact, you need them more than ever now. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so you did a handful of next level menopause makeovers throughout the book. And um, the common theme among them was to lift heavy stuff regularly and changing up the cardio, which uh, Dimity and the other Sarah talked about with Celine on Tuesday. So I'm just curious, when you gave these women a makeover, like what were, what were their attitudes? Were they skeptical? Were they optimistic? Were they gleeful? No burpees? You know, what, how'd they react? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a combination. Like some of them were so desperate. They're like, I don't care. I'm going to try anything. Mm. And then some were like, really? But I love my long runs. I love my long rides. Like, yes, I understand that. But if we're trying to get you to where you want to be, we have to look at the quality and start phasing in the quality. And there is that time for the soul food of long endurance, but that's not the focus. Um, So it was really individual. So working with people and understanding what their soul food is and, and how to kind of mitigate that and do a little bit of phasing in, but towards the end, everyone was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much better I feel. Even my, some of the case studies that weren't in there were people were doing adventure racing, like God Zone, which is four to seven days of 24 hour adventure racing kind of stuff, like eco Mm. challenge. Mm -hmm. And some of the women were very doubtful that they weren't going out for eight hours on the weekend on one day tramping. It's like, no, we need to get you strong if you're strong, then you can last through this. And they all did. They're like, I can't believe I was not the weak link this time. I actually was super strong and I didn't do all the volume. And so they didn't get injured because I mm. think that's the other thing we forget when we start getting older and lose muscle integrity. We also have a greater predisposition for soft tissue injury, for bone stress reactions. And so for lifting and doing plyometrics and doing the high intensity work, we're making our bodies really robust and resilient to stress. I love that. All right, all right. So that's that's a good um, testimonial to LHS. All right. 
Um, so let's shift gears a bit here to hit the, this is a joke, very small and not complicated topic of nutrition. <laughs> yes, I write, everyone has, has an idea. So again, you introduced the new, a new to me acronym, which is LEA, which is low energy availability. So please talk to us about what low energy availability is and why active women are more, pr more prone to it than say sed the sedentary population. Okay, so low energy availability, it's its actually starting to get a little bit more buzz in the active world. We see a lot of the Olympic athletes who couldn't uh, last that fifth year mm. um, between the cycles, like completely breaking down. And it's because they fell into LEA and then eventually into relative energy deficiency and support. So when we talk about low energy availability, if we think about having to um, you know, sit on the couch all day with a remote control and just watch Netflix. <laughs> and not move at all, like you're not even getting up to pee, then your body needs a certain amount of calories just to keep the heart going, the lungs going, the brain going, the muscles going, even though you're just lying there. And we see that that baseline amount of calories is anywhere between 1100 and 1500 calories just to exist. So if we start looking at a lot of women who are trying to lose weight or they're doing long distance running, they tend to fall into just consuming that amount. Mm. Um, and when we look at getting up off that couch to just do some housework or do some errands or go to work or pick up the kids, you're using more calories. Then when you start adding training in, you're adding even more calories, not only from the physicality of it, but also the recovery from it. Mm -hmm. So by the time you have someone who gets up off the couch, does daily chores, goes and picks up the kids, and then does maybe a three to four mile run, you're already up to around 2000 calories. So when you start thinking about how many calories the body needs, and the lack of calories, the body starts to shut down when it doesn't have enough calories coming in. So we know from the research that we've been doing that over 50% of recreational female athletes are in low energy availability. Wow. Yeah. That's staggering. And it's huge. It's huge. And it's not necessarily intentional. We see a lot of the trendy diets that invoke intentional LEA, like delaying eating or fasted training. But a lot of women are so busy that they're like, oh, I'll, I'll eat later. Or they get up and they get out the door, they do the run, they come back and all of a sudden it's boom, let's get the family out the door. I've got to get out the door to work. And they, again, delay eating. So it becomes this big hole of no food around training. And what the body does, especially the hypothalamus, it perceives it as a um, survival stress. So it's like, wait a second, there's not enough food coming in for all this activity. I'm going to downregulate everything. So thyroid starts to take a hit after only four days. We start to see lean mass being broken down because amino acids are needed and lean mass is very energetically hungry. Mm. So we start seeing all these changes and women will perceive it as being fatigued. They might not recover very well. So they're fighting through their running or they're fighting through their training. And they're not getting any results because they stay in this low energy state. And when we think about from a brain standpoint, the hypothalamus is our central area in the brain that's responsible for appetite, responsible for temperature control, responsible for our endocrine system. So when we don't eat enough, women have two areas in the hypothalamus that have what we call kispeptin neurons. And these kispeptin neurons are downregulated when there isn't enough calorie coming in. 
enough mm -hmm. carbohydrates coming in, enough to say, hey, yeah, we have enough food coming in to support the entire body. So when kisspeptin neurons get downregulated, this is what signals the endocrine system to start slowing down, the thyroid to start slowing down, the appetite to have a hit. So we get a misstep in our appetite. Um, and when we look at the threshold for women to maintain that in sedentary women, it is 45 calories per kilogram of body weight. That's in sedentary women. And for men, it's 15. So mm. there's a huge discrepancy because there's only one area of kisspeptin neurons in men, but two in women. Huh. So this is why we see like fasted training, ketogenic, um, the intermittent fasting, all that works in the male population because the threshold for low energy availability disruption is different for women. Mm. So when we're talking about getting out of low energy availability or trying to stay out of a breakdown state, we have to fuel for what we are doing. Mm -hmm. Across the board, regardless of age, women do better in a fueled state. So that can be a half a banana before your early morning run. It could be a protein fortified coffee before your morning run. But you definitely need to eat before and recover from. Because mm -hmm. even if you eat before, but you don't have breakfast or, or lunch or snack afterwards, you stay in that breakdown state and your body perceives it as no food, low energy availability. Mm. And when it progresses, we can get into relative energy deficiency in sport. Mm -hmm. And then this is a whole bunch of systems that are affected by low energy and low calorie. So we start seeing cardiovascular disturbance. We start seeing mood disorder, depression, mm -hmm. anxiety, poor sleep. We start seeing gut irritability, immune issues, bone stress reactions, lean mass um, changes. So a lot of women are like, is it perimenopause or what's going on? But in fact, it's a combination of perimenopause and relative energy deficiency in sport. Mm. And note that LEA and red S mm -hmm. does not just pick out perimenopause women. Mm -hmm. It is across the board. We see it starting in teenagers all the way up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is a good, good. Thank you for that really helpful explanation and kind of a, a, a call to um be aware right yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah so that then the timing of meals you're very much against bookending your day with calories um yes as, as well as eating lightly on rest days which i think some people are like oh i didn't exercise today so i better not you know eat as many calories so um how should people then be eating how should women i should say be eating yeah so when we bookend our calories we have that whole day of um metabolism for the most part. So your body's like, hey, wait, uh, here's all the stress that we're having in the day and there's no fuel for it. So it falls into that low energy state, which is why we don't want to book in the calories. Mm -hmm. So the way we look at it is you want to fuel for the stress the body is under. So if you are going to exercise, you do need to have something before and after. If you're having a very stressful day, you have to make sure that you're eating protein at every meal. So you're maintaining amino acids coming in, you're maintaining a low level of carbohydrate that's coming in so that your body is never in that big hole of catabolism because that's where we start to go awry. And if you're looking at, you know, you're super busy and you can't sit down for a meal, that's understandable because everyone's life is super busy, but you have to make sure that you're eating along the way. It can be some fruit and some nuts, could be a thing of yogurt, and you have your real meal when you get home. 
I'm not saying that's ideal, but I'm saying that you have to make sure that you are getting adequate protein and carbohydrate in throughout the day Mm -hmm. to maintain energy so that you don't fall into the brain perceiving you being in a low energy state. Mm -hmm. And when we, when we um, talk about like, uh, what kinds of things to eat as we get start getting into perimenopause, we have to have an eye to the type of carbohydrate that we're eating mm. because we tend to get into more of an insulin resistance and an anabolically resistant body state. Mm. So yes, carbohydrates are still super important, but we want to start reaching more for the fruit and the veg and the whole grains, less for the pretzels and the wraps and, and more processed foods. Well, let's talk for a second about protein because um, in in the book you recommend um, a range depending upon like people's activity level from about 1.8 to 2.4 grams per kilogram of body weight daily. So um, for a 170 pound woman, um, that's about 150 to 160 grams per day, which feels like a lot. (laughs) Oh my. Um, Do you get that reaction a lot? And and so how do you, and, and if so, how do you get your clients there? Like, how do you fill in those gaps. And, and I'm also curious, like what proteins you like personally? Yeah, I get that all the time. People are like, Oh my gosh, it's so much protein and protein <laughs> tends to be the hardest thing, especially for endurance athletes to get it. But when we look at the recommendations, so that um, 0.8 per pound, uh, that's generally recommended for women, or you see on the, you know, the food and nutrition labels, 56 grams of protein for women. That's based on sedentary old men. So when they looked at the research and they're like, okay, well, we're just going to generalize to women because they're smaller and their muscle mass is about the same as these sedentary old men. But what wasn't taken into account for was activity level, the muscle integrity, how active the muscle is and metabolism. It doesn't slow down when you're a young woman as compared to a sedentary old man. So when we start looking at the newer research is coming out, especially for recreational younger female athletes, the recommendation is up to 1.4 to 1.8 grams per kilo. And when you start looking at perimenopause and aging, women, again, are more anabolically resistant. We need more protein, especially at every meal and after exercise. And for men, it starts to hit around 60, late 60s, where they're becoming more anabolically resistant and need more protein. So when we start looking at the amount of protein that women need in order to keep muscle mass integrity, to keep body comp in check, keep our brains functioning well and having a circulating um, pool of amino acids, we need to have between 30 and 40 grams at every meal, regular doses, and definitely before and after exercise. So if we start looking at how we're dosing our protein, it's easy to get that amount of protein. And it doesn't have to be all animal protein. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, I have to eat, you know, six chicken breasts in a day. Like, no, no. <laughs> we Gross. Don't... No, thank you. That's too much. <laughs> yeah. Or someone going, I have to eat 10 cans of beans to get that amount of protein. It's like, no, you don't quantify it like that. You look at everything that has protein, sprouted sprouts or sprouted grain bread, nuts, seeds, eggs, yogurt, cheese, tuna, pea protein, protein isolates um to so many things have protein in it and when you start combining and, and building it up it's relatively easy to get the protein okay. when it's it, when it's not easy is when you're doing i'm having fruit and um you know a wrap or i'm going to have a spinach wrap for lunch then you're not getting protein so it's just the eye that you want to have some kind of protein with every meal and then you're going to get up there 
it's relatively easy to garner that amount of protein when you have the mindset of I need a little bit of protein in every meal. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, can I ask that this is a little bit of an offshoot question, but you know, chocolate milk used to be like the, the, the recovery drink, you know, the it recovery yeah. drink, which uh, do, yeah. do, you, do you still subscribe to that Stacey? And I don't know if you ever did, but I mean, what's your take on having a glass of chocolate milk after a workout? I never ascribed to it because it was based on male data and women mm. need more protein than men. So it was all on that four to one carbohydrate to protein ratio. Well, works well for men. But for women, we come back down to um, metabolic baseline within an hour. So that means our blood sugar and everything is is back down to where it was before exercise. And with that, we need more protein to facilitate muscle repair and glycogen recovery. So we're looking more to two to one. So I'd always tell people you have to gaff your chocolate milk with some extra protein. It could be extra protein powder. It could be you're having some hard-boiled eggs with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, not enough protein. Okay. All right. That's Mm. fair. I will say this morning after a bike ride, I went out for like a two hour ride, came back, had a big glass of that. And I was like, okay, I know that's not enough because I did my research. (laughs) I was reading last night cramming for this. So then I had a, I had to go pick up some kids. And so, um, I had a big bowl of yogurt on the way there that had like 17 grams of protein in it. So that was, yeah. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah, You could stir your yogurt into your chocolate milk and have a thicker shake because sometimes Sometimes yeah. I freeze Greek yogurt and then stir that into the chocolate milk. And then mm. there you go. Mm. So yeah, there's or, ways of doing it. Yeah. Or I'm thinking pour up a, maybe a little almond butter into it and make it almost like yep. a pretty easy going yeah. smoothie. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, so uh, chocolate milk that kind of leads us into hydration and you have the, the chapter in the book after nutrition is hydration with the subtitle. You can't necessarily trust your thirst right now. And that really jumped out right. at me. Um, yeah. So, so, okay, Stacey, so you did a deep dive into hydration for your PhD. So um, can you give gals a few pointers about staying hydrated, especially since it's now the height of summer and everybody's sweltering? Yeah, so there's two big things that people, regardless of male, female um, age, do wrong. Is they walk around with a water bottle all day, and they're sipping from it, and they're drinking copious amounts of water, and they're peeing, and they're thinking they're hydrated. But Mm. in actuality, because it's plain water, it goes right through you. So you end up peeing out more than you actually absorb, because there's no plain water in the body. There's always a, a mix of glucose and sodium, and that's how the body absorbs and transfers water. So if you put just a little bit of salt in your water bottle, you end up drinking less and staying hydrated. So it can be maybe a 16th a teaspoon in a 750 or one of those 22 to 25 ounce bottles of water. Mm. So that's the biggest thing. It's just having a little bit of sodium in the water that you're drinking. Mm -hmm. And then when we start thinking about exercise and exercise thirst, um, you know, there's the two camps in the sports science world of drink the thirst or drink on a schedule. And neither one of them are right, especially Mm. when we start looking at perimenopause and menopausal women. Um, Because there's a lot of biochemical changes that affect our thirst. So when we're talking about drink to thirst, women are different from men in the fact that we don't lose as much body water, we store more heat, and we end up having normal to low blood sodium at the end of the same distance in time as men when we're looking at different exercise. Mm. So women need to focus on bringing 
functional fluid in at regular intervals. So it's not the ACSM or Gatorade prescription of 250 mils every 15 minutes. It's sipping along the way to make sure that you're getting functional hydration in to help attenuate that heat storage and to help with lead sodium levels. So when I talk about a functional drink, that's something that is around that three to 4% carbohydrates. So you're looking around seven to eight grams of carbohydrate for eight ounces, preferably glucose and sucrose, staying away from maltodextrin and fructose and sodium. Those are the two things that you actually need for staying hydrated or slowing the rate of dehydration when you're exercising. So this is during exercise, right? Just to be clear, it's not when we're walking around with a water bottle. All day long. Right, right. <laughs> okay. okay, so we're on to our third and final topic here, sleep. We don't have an acronym, or as far as I could tell, I couldn't find one that you guys made, but I could probably find one for you guys because I am tossing and turning a ton at 3 a.m. these days. And not getting enough sleep feels like stress to me. When people tell you to calm down, it just stresses me out. I'm like, don't tell me that. I know I'm stressed. Like, And when I'm lying in my bed and watching it 2.59, 3 o'clock, 3.01, I'm like, I should be sleeping. I need to sleep. And I get so worked up. So why does sleep become so tough during these perimenopausal years? Yeah, so first and foremost, estrogen is tied to a lot of our sleep arcs architecture. So it's tied to melatonin production. It's tied to serotonin and dopamine. So when we start having these changes in our ratios, we start having changes in our neurotransmitters. We also have an increased sympathetic drive. So our body is already under a lot of stress. And when these hormone changes, it just invokes a greater sympathetic drive. And our cortisol, baseline cortisol levels are up. So we're already in a more tired but wired state. So when we try Mm. to go to sleep, our body is right at that level where it's really easy to wake up. Our core temperature isn't low. We're not getting into slow wave sleep. Every small little disturbance picks us up. And because we are in that sympathetic drive, when we wake up, our brain starts going. So it is not an imaginative thing. It is actually (laughs) Um, so yes. So how do we mitigate that? Right. So we have to look at how can we increase our parasympathetic drive? How do we get that rest and digest going? First and foremost, not eating two hours before bed or actually preferably three hours before bed, because we Mm -hmm. don't want to be digesting food because that takes away, it's a parasympathetic action. So it takes away from our ability to get into sleep. The other thing is we need to have a cool room and a very like comfortable environment so that we can keep our core temperature down. Because in order to fall asleep, we need to drop our core temperature, keep it down, because the natural um, sleep-wake cycle is core temperature comes down and then slowly rises to wake us up. So this is why you're saying like a cool room, um, white noise to kind of uh, cover some of the noises that might instigate some waking episodes. and then, you know, all your typical good sleep hygiene where you're no screen time before bed, <clears throat> excuse me, drinking something cool before bed to help drop core temperature. So you're doing all the good sleep hygiene things, but a lot of women are like, that still doesn't work for me. Now what? I'm like, yep, I know. So we look <laughs> first at having some cold tart cherry juice 30 minutes mm. before bed. Mm-hmm. It's not sweet, so it doesn't invoke a... Um, blood glucose response. 
but it does have some natural melatonin that works with your body's own melatonin to help induce sleep, which is different from taking a melatonin tablet. Taking a melatonin tablet or a pill um, gives a certain level of melatonin that's not necessarily natural for your body. Mm-hmm. And so you get a very sedative sleep, which is not good sleep architecture and not recovery or restful sleep. Knocks you out, but it's not restorative sleep. So you need to use tart cherry juice if you're looking for that melatonin boost. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that we often instigate is using adaptogen. So we're looking at ashwagandha or rhodiola because the phytochemicals in those two plants actually work with our stress responses. So it works with our HPA axis to reduce the cortisol effects in our body. So it's not a pharmaceutical agent that just like blocks cortisol. It's a phytochemical that comes in and reads how much cortisol you have, how sensitive receptors are, let's downregulate it, let's modulate it so your body is not in a stressed state. Mm. So it is a way to use plant compounds to, to really help you get into more of a parasympathetic um, response so that you can sleep. And the third big thing comes back to the low energy state that we were talking about earlier is if you aren't eating enough, you have a lot of hypoglycemic responses while you're sleeping, which means you wake up because every time you have a hypoglycemic response, you completely wake up because your body's like, oh, I'm stressed. I need food. Mm. So you have to make sure that you're eating enough during the day to stay out of low energy availability, but you're not eating too close to bed. And then you're looking at dropping core temperature and either using tart cherry juice adaptogens to help invoke that more parasympathetic response Mm -hmm. you're saying tired but wired state i feel that is like oh my gosh it just describes so much of my nighttime you know (laughs) mine too right now because Uh, we've we've been on the road for three months and my kid is with us and so like right now she's sleeping in our room and she'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like mommy i need a hug and so she'll wake me up in the middle of the night just get a hug i'm like oh my oh my gosh so so one thing that you recommend in the book is um thinking about an evening workout session even if you haven't slept well the previous night which to me seems somewhat counterintuitive um Mm -hmm. uh like i don't know by the end of the day i i can't muster the energy to go work out but so can you explain why that could be helpful um for um you know getting to sleep Yeah. So um, when you're looking at doing a workout and it can be, you know, a sit workout where you're doing 20 seconds of high intensity work, you're raising your core temperature and you have a subsequent response to really drop it. And you also get a growth hormone and anti-inflammatory response, as well as your rush of endorphins and dopamine. So all of these things of your core temperature coming down, your growth hormone, your anti-inflammatory responses, and dopamine all help you get into more of a parasympathetic response to sleep well. Hmm. That's hmm. awesome. Well, then at the end, you offer this um, kind of fun tip, uh, topping off your sweat session with a cool shower for good sleep. Like I imagine, I mean, you've talked about this a little bit, but it's, it's bringing down that body core temperature. Is that what, would that work even if you didn't um, work out? Yeah. So women respond differently to cold than men. So post-exercise, women have a vasodilatory response. So that means all of our blood goes to our arms, our legs, our feet, our hands, and not back to our heart. 
Whereas men vasoconstrict and everything goes back to their heart. So then they can flush the muscles and bring the core temperature down relatively quickly. So for us having a cool shower, two to four minutes of you know around 60, 62 degrees, so that's a cold tap, um, really helps constrict and send the blood back centrally, which facilitates dropping core temperature, which facilitates recovery. So it's really beneficial for women. If you are also having issues sleeping and haven't worked out, you can still do the constriction by having um, cool water immersion or cold shower, just a really short one, because mm-hmm. it will cause that constriction and then dilation response, which helps bring core temperature down. Nice. Cool. I and like on that. these really, these really hot days with no air conditioning, you yeah. stick your, yeah, stick your feet and or hands into cold water before bed, because you have these massive um, arterioles in your hands and your feet, the palmar surfaces of your skin that really control blood flow. So if you are looking to offload a lot of heat quickly, put your hands and feet in cold water or just your feet. My husband and I will stand in the bathtub in cool water on really hot <laughs> nights and then you can go to sleep because you just dumped a lot of heat. <laughs> oh, I love that. That That is, I love that. That's so easy to do. And yeah. I, it feels like it's super effective, which is like one, two punch. I love it. Exactly. That is awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, so um, wrapping up here. So between Tuesday's podcast with Celine and today's with you, Stacy, we have dug into so many helpful ideas and thoughts from Next Level. Um, but if someone hasn't listened to both episodes and hasn't grabbed a copy of Next Level yet, where do you recommend, like, what's one place that they can make a change if they are in this perimenopausal or coming into menopause, you know, or in menopause? biggest thing is to fuel for what you are doing one it helps you keep at a low energy and two it really helps dampen the stress that the body is under because we need to fuel to keep our bodies stress resilient Mm -hmm. okay and then um so i'm gonna sound in for someone who's got menopause fully in my rearview mirror i want to let folks know that you do come out the other side or at least i i seem to have and i don't think i'm uh, a unicorn <laughs> um, so, i think you're out the other side so yeah, I don't know. yeah 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 so i mean yeah sure i get inner injured more easily now and you know my gut sticks out more than i'd like but i i sleep really well i can grasp words in my brain when i want them which when i was going through um Men- perimenopause i was just like oh my gosh this is early alzheimer's this is it this is the start of the end and that that concern is gone and um and i'm also way more patient with my family members because i was just so cranky at my particularly my kids so <laughs> is it is it accurate to say that an, an agreeable type of equilibrium can be reached post-menopause definitely And all the stuff that we talk about, like in the book about changing your training and nutrition, specifically in perimenopause, it can start at any time. Like we have to have the eye that if people might be in postmenopause and they pick up a book or they're just hearing all this for the first time, it's not too late. Mm -hmm. So when you start looking at how you're changing your training and your nutrition through the transition and into postmenopause, all of that benefits to achieve performance potential and to actually be stronger and sleep better when you get through the transition into post-menopause. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, awesome, I, awesome. Good, good uh, perspective for sure. So, well, thank you, Stacy. You are a wealth of information. We definitely recommend picking up Next Level if you are um, intrigued by anything that uh, this conversation hit on. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, 
get <laughs> working on my protein. And um, I am, I think this is finally the kick I need to, I need to go get set up with a personal trainer um, Yay. and you get my, get my, get my squat form looked at. It's been a, it's been too long. I need, I need a little bit of a, a refresh, I think. So. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah thank you. Thanks, Stacey. Yeah. Thank you. It's been great. Wow. I'm a little bit in the middle of a hot flash right now, but I think that is environmentally induced. <laughs> but, uh, I'm like, and I'm sitting here drinking my, 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 my pure water. I'm like, oh, doing all these things wrong. Um, but yeah, she's, she's just a wealth of information. And I love how scientific she goes down, but still, you know, makes it very accessible and kind exactly. of fun and to a, listen to, you know? Yeah. And, and tips that you can actually implement into your life without, you know, re rehauling everything. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you subscribing to and rating this podcast wherever you listen. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a rating or tell someone about the show. So review, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can do it while you're, you know, soaking your feet in cold water. In night, cold. So. Yes, yes. You uh, need to multitask. <laughs> Our podcast today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward from Sounds Like Pictures. We wish him all the best in his next endeavor. Many happy miles. We're going to miss you, Alex, and I got to go eat some lunch. I got to go fuel for the work that I've done, Sarah. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. All right.